0: This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams.
1: Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. In this episode, I am happy to be talking to Susan Shank, who is going to talk to us about her own journey with learning differences, what she learned along the way, what she now uses in her business, um, to help other kids as well. Thanks for being here, Susan. I always appreciate chatting with you. Can you start by introducing who you are and what you do?
2: Sure. It's great to be here, Penny. Thanks for inviting me. And um, basically, I am an occupational therapist that has worked in the school setting for 20 plus years until I stepped out on my own. Um, I'm also a mom of three kids, so I understand the mom world, and I have a learning difference, which I finally came out of denial around the age of uh, 35, 40. <laughs> so it took a long time. It was yeah. it was amazing how long it actually took to to actually step into my learning and what that meant, and. Basically, you know, I created my own business because I saw this need for parents to have support in a way that was outside of the boundaries of school, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Even as an OT, I was, I was confined to what I could do, and I just thought, oh, I got, I need to do more than what they were sort of saying I could do. Um, I think that just came out of my own sort of understanding of what children needed in terms of their learning. So that's when I created my business and then wrote my book and then jumped into my nonprofit (laughs) organization. So
1: that's kind of how it happened. Lots of things going on. And the nonprofit is Shift Your Thinking LD, right? Right. Yes. And
2: yeah, and and that's how I view it is my book kind of coming to life in terms of being able to reach out and support people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had a very similar journey myself with book and then other, other services and opportunities. Um, do you, are you willing to share what your learning disability is?
2: Um, I actually haven't been diagnosed, so that's why I refer to it as a learning difference. Um, but, um, you know, my, my children have been, um, two out of the three. So I know that, um, that the assessment that was completed for them was called a learning disability. Um, And there were some attention um, issues as well. So, so I would say definitely that that's the same with me. I know that, um, you know, letter sounds are hard for me reading, writing, getting my ideas down. So, so I know I fall into a learning difference in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, I like to call it dyslexia. I like that term better. So that's, that's sort of what I refer to my undiagnosed diagnosis.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I just think it helps in this conversation um, for the audience to know where you're coming from, like what your experience was, where you struggled. Um, Do you want to maybe outline a little bit about how that impacted you growing up? Sure.
2: Um, well, not knowing, I just had a sense that I just you know I just couldn't do things the other way the way kids could other kids could, so mm-hmm. I started to survive instead of learn, and um, even though I had the ability to learn, I couldn't even understand it myself. How could I do this really well and yet not have any clue what's happening here like even for myself, I analyzed my own sort of struggles internally um and just came the conclusion that learning was not for me, which is not a very good conclusion to come to.
1: But, it's not common um, though.
2: It is common. And and that's sort of, you decide school's not for you, learning's not for you. There's got to be something else. So I survived. Um, so I understand kids that act out that, not that I acted out, but I understand that. Um, I was the one that tried to hide as much as possible. So I was the invisible person. Um. And whenever I could get out of class, I would. The odd time when I got into high school, I'd try to play the clown. Yeah. That got you in trouble just as well as anything else. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. so,
2: you know, so you survive and you, you use your social skills whenever possible to buddy up with people and get those answers and get them to work with you. Um, and my saving grace, if I can put it that way, was the athletic ability that I had. So yeah. it allowed me to stay in a social group that was um, able to support me and and help me through school. And then I could, you know, excel in, in athletics. So that's that was, an interesting um,
1: concept too, that you didn't have the support for the learning challenges specifically, but you had a different type of support system that really helped you to keep going.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's what I love to sort of tap into when I talk to parents is what is the support system? Because kids can, they, they smoke screen themselves, (laughs) you know, and, and everyone around them, they just say, you know, there's nothing wrong because in their mind, there isn't, they're surviving and they've survived since age four or five. So they actually can't see what's going on as well as I couldn't. Um, I just knew this wasn't working for me, but I was going to use whatever methods I could to get the job done.
1: Yeah. 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 That's a powerful insight that, when you felt like you were surviving and getting by, you didn't feel like anything was really wrong. Um, Yeah. That's really interesting.
2: I I knew something was wrong and yet the denial was huge. Like I said, Mm. I had to start writing my book, which honestly I didn't think I was going to share with anyone. I just started writing for myself um, to really dive in and figure out what was that? What was that all about? Because I have a degree now. so. Yeah. Right.
1: You figured it out. I did. Figure for sure. It out. And what, yeah. what did that look like then? Did you go from high school to college?
2: Yeah. I, well, I said to myself at the end of grade 12, because basically, you know, when you're at the end of high school, people categorize you. And so do you, you categorize yourself too. Mm-hmm. You say, well, this is all I can do, which again is not where I want kids to be. Um, and I said, I can run, but at least I tapped into my strengths. I always seem to pick them up and use them. So I said, well, I can run. So that's what I'm going to do. And I headed off to college to be a fitness instructor because I knew anything physical I could do. And when I was there, I started to figure out how I, how I was learning because a lot of what we were taught was very visual. The human body. Right. Um, yeah. And as soon as I started tapping into that, I went, wow. And I started getting A's. Not that he didn't get A's before, but I, I thought they were fluke. I just thought someone else got them for me, but this time they didn't. This was solely me. And yeah. after a year of getting A's and really loving the human anatomy, I knew I was going to head on. Yeah.
1: yeah. I never thought about that, about which fields of study would be taught more visually versus some others, you know, that was definitely more visual than say business or, you know, math. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I always teach parents to find your child's strengths and interests and use those, which you just kind of intuitively did yourself, but I hadn't thought about, um, kind of gearing the field of study based on the type of learning that's common in different areas. That's really insightful.
2: Yeah. um, That was kind of the uh aha moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And what did you shift then from fitness to occupational therapy at some point?
2: Yeah. So I jumped on the bus and headed to the university. Um, I remember stepping off and seeing the grounds to a place I never even knew existed. I mean, that sounds silly, but I knew it existed, but I never thought it was for me. So stepping right. on those grounds, I just thought, wow, you know, could this be somewhere I could go? And so I stepped into general science Is after I talked with the, the uh, academic counselor. They said, well, start with your science. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew it had to be human-related, human body Something health oriented. And yeah. I went to the bookstore, if you can imagine, this is how you can pick your career, everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to the bookstore and I looked at the books of the different health fields. And that's how I selected occupational therapy.
1: That's so interesting. Because Another I, thing I would have never
2: thought to do. Yeah. So I went in and it was like, really? You can study like mental health and physical health. And I thought, well, why wouldn't you pick this field?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and do you think the fact that it's kind of a service field that it's helping other people with challenges? Do you think that played into your decision at all, or were you just didn't have that awareness really then?
2: I think I always wanted to to help people. Again, I I don't know how much that was. I think it was just I love the human body, and I it wasn't that I was going to head to help kids with their learning. That wasn't even right. in my my thoughts. Um, but, but it was just, I knew I wanted to head on. I knew I enjoyed learning and I knew I loved what the human body had to offer and I was going to learn about it.
1: Yeah. That's cool. And that's really great that you still had that drive after 12 years of kind of struggling in school and barely getting by. It's amazing that you were, um, willing and had the determination to then continue right into university from there. Yeah,
2: because I had, I had to finish, actually, my college to get in as a, a mature student.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit, I think, about your work and what you're doing now and how you're using your own experience as having learning challenges to help kids who are now struggling with learning challenges.
2: Yeah, so again, not really knowing this, <laughs> I ended up in the the school setting. I came back um, to work in my area and where I grew up, actually, and um, I started to realize I did want to work with kids. At that point, when I was working with adults, just a little bit, and so I, I ended up getting into the school system, and I started working with kids. And right away, I I found my approach was a lot lot different than the therapists around me. Um, I guess I was that why person. Why? Why are we doing this? What's the outcome? I always question everything. And as a result, very quickly, the way I assessed, the way I did my recommendations, people were starting to notice. um, The therapists around me that were working with me were saying, like, how did you get to this end result? How do you assess Mm. this? How do you do this? And I I started to realize that I I was actually paving my own way of servicing kids. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about what the main strategies that you tend to offer for kids with learning challenges. What can parents do to help um, kind of pave the way for success?
2: Well, what I do is I I take people through what I call strategy sessions because it's really about strategies. It's really about analyzing what is needed for your child to be successful what tasks are they asked to do and what are the barriers that are in front of them and then we just go through um looking at what's you know what's the priority like is is reading the priority right now and what do they need to help support them so that they can read at the level that they understand because with learning differences as you know penny like, there's these gaps in what children are able to do. Mm -hmm. And I like finding those gaps and trying to close them really quickly. Um, An example is I I worked with a a student that was in grade six and he was working at a grade three or four level. And I stepped in with him and used um, technology. We started with Kurzweil at that point. It was quite a while ago, but we used Kurzweil and I brought him up to his grade level. Um, because wow. he had tools that allowed him to, for the first time, read and comprehend and answer with, with the support of technology. So yeah. we, jumped, we jumped those those lessons that he was stumbling on and allowed him to come up to where he actually could work at that level.
1: Yeah, And I see learning challenges as more of how do we accommodate, how do we give the tools to be successful because we can't change them. It's the way that our kids' brains are and while we can find some improvement, it really feels like it's more about those strategies and technology and the tools like you talked about where we're figuring out how to work with it to succeed, um, not being in denial of it or not still kind of pushing the same approach. Like for instance of reading, you know, a lot of kids end up just still being taught in the same way because they're not identified um, or maybe their school doesn't have the tool that would work best for them. Maybe what they have is not helpful either. Um, But I think, you know, as parents, our goal really is how do we take what we have and figure out how to help our child succeed um, with that because we can't change that piece, and for us, especially, technology has been huge um, for executive functioning. Um, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. What other types of technology do you usually recommend to families? Well, that's kind of a hard question.
2: It depends on what the needs are of the, of the child, right? And, and um, so, you know, sometimes it's an iPad and a certain app. And I can work on skills that they do need that they're struggling with. So let's say um, they're struggling with learning letters, or something as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when the, the iPad is very powerful in apps because it allows children to have the feedback that they need, the repetition mm-hmm. without somebody telling them what that letter sound is or what that letter is. And they can repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And that's when this, Technology moves beyond any other strategy because it allows kids to be independent, even though a tool is telling them what it is, it's still them doing it. Right. So right. they're saying, I'm doing this all by myself. In their mind, they're saying, I'm doing this all by myself. And that's that's the cool part. So that's for younger kids where they can actually work on some of those skills that you know at school they're being requested to know. Right. So you can keep kids at their grade level, if you use these tools right away. Um, and let's say we have a, a, a child or a student that's got this big gap, like I said before. That's when, you know, you can start looking at, like, Google Docs is an awesome tool. Um, I mentioned Kurzweil was a tool that I've used before. Um, and, and various, um, you know, apps that, like, Read&Write and, read and, read and um, app. Mm -hmm. So, but it depends on the student and it depends what they need is, is what you sort of look at. Like if they're totally resistant to writing, I wouldn't put them on word prediction and a blank screen, (laughs) you know, right? because it would be too frustrating for them. So that's how I kind of, I see what are, what's going on? What are they requested to do? How can we break down those, those barriers so that they feel like they're progressing? Because that's the number one goal is for them to see that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, kidspiration is always a big one that's come up for kids who struggle with writing because it helps them to kind of put their thoughts out there and then structure from there. Um it helped my son as well when he was younger, um, with his dysgraphia and written expression disorder. Um, we use an iPad now in high school for executive functioning issues because paper is a nightmare (laughs) for a kid (laughs) who has zero executive functioning skills. And so he uses an iPad and an Apple pencil. He, you know, he should be typing because of the dysgraphia, but he's been resistant to that for years and years. And so, um, he's willing to use the iPad with the Apple Pencil. So we kind of compromised there for a while to see um, what we can do, you nice. know, what, what he's willing to buy into and how much he's able to use that. If we just um, tell him how it's going to be, that resistance is only going to grow. And, you know, honestly, we started there in, I want to say seventh or eighth grade with the iPad. And we said, you're going to use this and this is how you're going to do it and and go do it. And there was a lot of resistance. Yes. You know, I still found him using pencil and paper in class nine times out of 10 for a long time. And so I think, you know, it's really important that we're really working with our kids to find something that they're willing to use and that clicks for them. That's actually helpful because we all think differently. And yeah. my super organized brain had an exact plan for him of how he <laughs> was going to use it, you know, and yeah. and and that didn't work. Um, so I think that's a really important tidbit for parents is you really have to work together to figure out how to accommodate, you know, even back in First grade and second grade, we tried um, the raised line paper. We tried the okay. alternated line highlight paper, and he was still coming home with stuff on regular paper and he didn't want to be different. So, you know, we've gone through that for a while that different things that I just give him and say, this is what you need to use, it, it's not always helpful. Um, and when they're little, you really do have to guide them more for sure.
2: Yeah, I, I love that you're saying that, Penny, because it's so true. You have to work together. And I find when kids are going into high school, you know, when so, that social sort of aspect is huge in their life, right? And you can't deny that. That's, yeah. that's part of being a teenager. And many times we start looking at phones, you know, to do the accommodations mm-hmm. because, it, because it's slick and it's, and it's
1: doable. So, um, you really, and it's more interesting. I think for a lot of kids, they'd rather be on technology. Yeah. And it's right in their hands and they're
2: already using it. So, um, yeah, working with your, your teen or your child to say, you know, these are the things that we need to put in place. What do you think? And how can we do this? And also when you're talking about the writing penny, it's like, I think we also think there's only sometimes one way to do things and and with writing, I think of it as it, you could be approaching writing three different three different ways for three different ways of writing, right? So, um, you know, you might be using voice to text for one way of writing. Mm-hmm. You might be using um, word prediction for another way. So you start looking at what is the writing task, and you fit it to the technology, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the most interesting thing for us in in first and second grade. Third grade, wait a minute, first through fourth grade. I forgot what year I was going to talk about. We really struggled with writing assignments. You know, he had special ed for that. He was pulled out to work on it, but it, he didn't make a lot of progress with it. That written expression piece was just so hard. Um, the executive functioning aspect of that planning and organizing and sequencing, he could tell me verbally. An answer to the prompt and it would be great it would have you know descriptive language and would be you know beginning middle and end it would just be wonderful and then if I turned to him and said right after okay now now you know what to write down it was blank he was blank he could Mm -hmm. not write what he had just said um and so that was a big struggle, and we used some of the Kidspiration and other ideas. You know, people were always working with him on his writing assignments. And then when he got to fifth grade, his English teacher um, always used this giant box of laminated photographs as writing prompts, and they could choose anything out of the box for their weekly writing. And his writing just completely came alive. The first. Yeah writing piece he brought home that year, I asked if it was his. I couldn't believe that because it was typed. So, you know, I didn't have handwriting. I just couldn't believe that he had written it because he had struggled so much before that. And you know, being able to choose what you're writing about for one thing, but the picture, the visual seemed to make an enormous difference for him. And something that I can't quite wrap my brain around still, how we went from nothing to everything just with a photo prompt. But it was really amazing. And I just think parents really have to think outside of the box, you know, what can you you know, one of his early writing assignments in like second grade was to write about what you did on spring break. And that was the first time where he told me a great story and then he couldn't write it when I had that big realization of the disconnect there. And now I think back and I think, well, I should have shown him photos of what we did on spring break and that might've helped him. Um, but, you know, I didn't know that then. And I know that now, but that's, you know, there's so many opportunities to really get outside the box to help with learning challenges.
2: It's, it's interesting when you said that, Petty, because I am the same way. If I have an image I can write, because I think it taps into that part of our brain that really goes on fire when it comes to yeah. ideas. And so I have to have that image and even when I'm doing things like social media posts and those types of things, I actually can write more on Instagram than I can if I have to look at my blog posts. So it's, it's sometimes it's that um, blank page syndrome. And sometimes yeah. if we can just make it smaller so it doesn't seem so overwhelming and then tap into those visuals or those videos or anything that interests our kids to help them get their ideas
1: down. One of his last projects, we just did post-it notes. I said, you know, when I wrote my first book, I had like 50 post-it notes of different ideas and I put them up on um, our glass sliding door because that was what I had available. It was this big blank slate that I could use and just kept moving them around and moving them around until they made sense. And um, so we started doing some of that too. And it's been really helpful because I know for my son at least, he feels like he's locked in once something is on paper or something is typed in. And it's really hard for him to go back and change something or even to think about what he would change and how he would do it and why he would do it. So this really kind of gave him that opportunity for flexibility to try things out and then change them where he wasn't really open to that um, with just traditional writing, um, you know, so many different ways that we can accommodate, that we can help. Um, and, and a lot of things that teachers wouldn't even think of, I think, you know, so many of our teachers, just don't have information about learning differences. They don't have the knowledge because it hasn't been given to them or required of them. And I think, you know, parents can certainly try things at home and then suggest them at school and say, this has you know, been really successful in some of the homework. Can you try it in the classroom as well?
2: Yeah, definitely. And and home is a great place to do some of those experimenting yeah. sort of things because it, your child is, is comfortable, they're confident um, at home, where at school it's completely different. So it's actually a great place to start when you're looking at different strategies and technology to help kids.
1: Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a minute about kind of the concerns that many parents have about technology. A lot of our schools, each child has um, a laptop or a netbook computer like a Chromebook. And so what I hear constantly from other parents is my child is supposed to be doing homework and he has to do it on that computer. But I think he's getting distracted. He's online. He's doing this or that because it's the computer. They feel like that's kind of the first most likely opportunity for distraction. How can they manage, how can they balance between, you know, using technology for schoolwork or for, um, you know, as assistive technology and not having these issues of being distracted, of doing other things on the computer? Yeah, that's a good question, (laughs) Petty. It's a loaded question, I know.
2: (laughs) No, actually how I approached it with my kids when they started taking like laptops and iPads to school is I actually classified those tools as mine. Now I'm talking about this sort of bring your own device approach, so right? it's different, but still it's the same thing. I think the school, there's this ownership that this is ours and this is what this tool is for. So it um, sets it up as a, more of a powerful tool than an entertainment tool. So if if your child can have that sort of approach where they have an iPad that has their games on it, or they have a device that allows them to have that entertainment time, then you try to keep it separate. So you maybe don't allow those those um, apps on on a device, but they do have a device where that can happen. So that can be one way of doing it. Um, there's other ways of closing down different um, you know different devices so they can't be used. I know schools are are good at sort of stopping a lot of of that but I think if if a child knows what they can gain with the technology then they're more up to use it as a powerful tool but if they don't then they are going to be distracted because it's not any different than paper and pencil so if they don't see the gains then they will be looking for other things to do when they're using it.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially kids with ADHD, because importance is not motivating to the ADHD brain, so you have to be interested, or you have to be getting stimulation, or it has to be urgent. Um, and schoolwork is usually in that category of, I. Ha- it's important, but it's not interesting, you know, right. so kids with ADHD struggle with that, and it's really easy to get to decide to seek some stimulation in other areas on the computer, you know, a, a game or even social media, you know, right. all of the pictures just scrolling through social media is more stimulating. So I think for parents, just understanding that first, kind of the reasons why they might be distracted. Um, I have talked to parents at different times about some of the software that can be put on where it only allows certain software or certain apps to be used at certain times or for a certain length of time a day or whatever. Um, A a lot of people run into the issue that the school issued computers, you can't change them, you can't install software, you can't... um, So, and my, my answer to that is always, you need to have an IEP or a 504 meeting and you need to come together with the school and let them know what's happening and let them know that they need to help you figure out something. You know, if they're giving a tool and it's actually making things worse, I feel like the onus is on them when we don't have any control over that tool that they need to come up with some ideas to try to resolve it.
2: Yeah. And it. And I I do think if kids are making progress, like you said, that they are gonna they are gonna use it because they want to be doing more and they wanna be showing their peers what they can do. And so they they strive to be successful in school. They want to be. Mm-hmm. So so if if it's coming alongside and able to show them progress, then I think they're more you know, able to tap into using it the right way. I, I think as soon as we get into these fights of, well, you can't do this and you start shutting mm-hmm. things down, it becomes like something like you said about, you know, here, you have to use this and this is how you have to use it. And then kids just go, nope. And it becomes
1: a battle. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes me wonder about making those distractions rewards for a certain amount of progress on the homework or the work that needs to be done. Um, Or, you know, kids need a lot of breaks potentially with schoolwork. So maybe on their, you know, they work 10 or 15 minutes, they get a five minute break. On that five minute break, they can surf the web or they can do something else. And then they have to come back to it. And you know, of course, a lot of kids aren't going to manage that themselves. There has to be some oversight until they get to a point where they're using things appropriately, where they're motivated to do that. Like you said, they're seeing the benefits. Then they're more likely to do it on their own.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a a delicate balance, but I'm it can be accomplished for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's the world we live in you know, just about everybody has a smartphone at this point. So this is the, the world that they're going to try to go to work and be successful in this, you know, you take your phone to work. Is it a distraction at work? How do you manage that? You know, these are, these are skills that we need to be teaching because this really is the way their world is likely going to be once they get out of high school. Right.
2: And then, and then just looking at what is a distraction? What are they going towards? Because that's something that you need to put in front of them as well, right? So if, yeah. if it is that visual or, or whatever, then like you said, start pulling some of those things in. Let them watch videos about content they're supposed to be learning in class and then do their writing or, or whatever. Yeah. You, you got to start tapping into why. Why are they doing that? What is it that we can now use when we see what they're doing to help them learn?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to mention too, listening to music, you know, for me, I've always thought that, well, it is for me very distracting. I could not have any music or TV or video or anything on the background when I need to read something or write something, like I would just start typing what I was hearing, um, or I would not be comprehending what I was reading. But for some people, listening to music actually focuses them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know so many times, and as a parent early on, I would have said, you know, of course you can't listen to music, how would you get anything done? Because I didn't think about the possibility that it's different for different brains. Um, and I, you know, my daughter who um, does not have a diagnosis, she's not a challenged learner, she has to listen to music to get anything done. Like she's listening to it all the time. My husband is the same way. Um, you know, for them, it's a focused tool. Um, so I just encourage parents to really be open to kind of these out-of-the-box ideas, these things that we might feel like absolutely couldn't be beneficial, um, you know, it never hurts to try.
2: Yeah, for sure. My son, like, he likes the TV on, and he says, mom, and it helps me to think. So I was like, okay, let's, Let's try that. And it may not be music because music, you might actually get into the lyrics and start singing and then your brain's way off into the song, right. but it might be something like white noise, you know, like the cafe sort of, you can go online and Google cafe setting. And then it's sort of this white noise that doesn't really have any meaning, but yep. it, it allows you again to, to do that focus part where you can tune in because you, you have the noise, but it doesn't mean anything.
1: Yeah. And I think um, meditations or mindfulness practices, the ones without words, without instructions, those could work really well as well. Just kind of a soothing background music. Um, My son actually started creating his own digital music with beats and rhythms that he found soothing. And helping him focus. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize at first until he started talking about how he was taking it out and turning it on at different times during his school day when he was stressed or when he was really struggling with everybody talking and getting his work done. And it dawned on me that 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 rhythm was kind of helping him to focus. And it's really amazing um, all the different ways that our brains work. I mean, we're all so different.
2: Yeah. It sounds like he's actually shutting out some of the sensory too. He's selecting his level of of sensory, which is really cool. For
1: sure. Yeah. yeah, Headphones go everywhere with us and they have for years. Um, Yeah. Because there is some sensory sensitivity, but there's also, I think it's more of a distraction, but it's Mm -hmm. also a distraction in that when kids are talking, when they're supposed to be working, he gets really upset about that. He gets really frustrated and then he's agitated and then he's, ang- you know, it just builds if he can't get away from it. So kind of, you know, blocking that sort of thing out too.
2: That's good. He's, he's got lots of strategies he's using and pulling out for himself. That's good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's only come as a teenager and, you know, he's 16 in the last two years, probably, not even, that he's really started to, I think, um, recognize what helps him in different environments and in different um, tasks, and is starting to kind of try to implement some of that on his own. So they do, you know, things do get better. They do learn how to help themselves, and it's really amazing. So what other strategies, tools, tips? did you want to be sure to share with the audience about learning challenges?
2: Um, I don't know. We've covered a ton. If anything.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I think it's just, I think as parents, we just have to be aware that we can observe our kids in a whole other light. And I know a lot of parents, you know, when I was an OT in those meetings, you know, that no one wants to go to. Yeah, <laughs> You're sitting there And I could tell the parents didn't have the confidence or even after the meeting, they said, well, I I could have said this, but it didn't mean anything. And it's like, no, that's, that's really not, you know, you, you have very valuable information that you need to observe your child and share with others. And even like what we were saying about trying things at home because your child is comfortable at home and you can put a lot of strategies in place and then be able to communicate that, as a team player in the school setting. And as soon as you have relationships with teachers, um, and you say, Hey, this is what I found. And this is what's working for my child. In most cases they want to be that team player as well. So I just find value your, your observations as a parent, tap in and be a, be a team player with your child. Like we were talking about, um, Allow them to show you what frustrates them, what works for them. Talk to them when they say, no, I need the TV on. And you're like, you know, you're thinking, well, no, that can't work. Stop him okay. and, and just let them try it and say, okay, let's see how that works. And then let's evaluate. Did that work or didn't it? <laughs> and, yeah. then, and, and just keep going through those baby steps of trying to figure out what, what's helpful. And um,
1: That yeah, reminded the, me of... Um... Dr. Roberto Olivardia, who has ADHD himself, and he is um, a psychologist and a professor at Harvard. He tells a story about... um, being in college and not being able to focus to read. And, you know, as a psychology student, he had a lot to read and he figured out, he was in Boston, I think it was, he figured out if he rode the train, he could read 60% faster. Like he did the, you know, he did the science experiment. He did the math. He calculated his timing, you know, how many pages he was reading. And so he started one day a week He would do the bulk of his reading. He would get on the train in the morning and he wouldn't get off the train for hours until the night. He would tell the conductor, I, you know, don't worry about me. I intend to be on here. You know, I'm, I'm just riding back and forth for the day and, you know, you'd take his lunch and he, and that's what he did because he figured out that he could be really successful by doing it this particular way. And, you know, I think some of it was the rhythm, and I think some of it was that background noise that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, became his go-to tool as far as reading because it worked and it worked well, and it seemed crazy, but it didn't matter because it was working.
2: Yeah, and I think as a parent, you have the ability to observe that and talk to your children and say, yep. you know, you're telling me this, so let's give it a try. Let's let's give it a try. Even if you think it's crazy and they're in front of the TV and you go, there's no way, let them try it. And then then sit down and say, you didn't get one thing done. But it's still, it was an experiment. And you're able to talk to them about what worked, what didn't. And then you go into the next thing. So the next time they say, I need the TV in front of me, you can say, remember
1: last time
2: it it didn't really work. Um, Yeah. And kids
1: love kind of this... Approach a scientific approach. So, -hmm. if you can make it really like an experiment and you keep data, you know, you write it down, this is how much you got done with the TV on, this is how much you got done without the TV or whatever, you know, not only does that really solidify the outcome for kids who um, are very literal and concrete or, you know, who really want it to be true and they're going to try to spin it that way, um, but I think it gets them more involved, more willing to test it rather than just say, this is what I need and I'm going to do it. Um, That can be pretty powerful too. Taking things on as kind of like an experiment.
2: Yeah, you're you're taking sort of that, um, yeah, you're doing the teamwork again, but it also, you're building those advocate skills and it happens at home when you're in that safe environment and you're saying, I think this is what I need. Because there's no way you're going to say that to a teacher and 30 kids if you can't say those things in front of your parents and say, yeah. I, I think this is what I need. So, you know, to be an advocate, like I always I always question that. Why do you think they could stand up now when they haven't really learned to stand up in other settings, you know, mm-hmm. and, and say, I think this is what I need and be able to understand the way they learn. And when they understand, then they can say, this is what I need and why I need it.
1: So. Yeah. And that self-advocacy piece is huge. I mean, right. we really need to start teaching that from the outset um, because it is tough for kids um, to do. And, and it, by starting early, it teaches them how to recognize when things aren't going well for them, what might be helpful. You know, it, it helps them to start thinking outside the box of how they can be successful too.
2: Yeah, and and then then it doesn't feel tough to them to do that, to have that conversation because they really know why they need it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So then they can say, for sure.
1: (laughs) <laughs> so we unfortunately are running to the end of our time i want to encourage everyone to check out your book beyond okay from invisible to invincible um, okay. as well as your website and the shift your thinking ld website and community um, i will have all of these links in the show notes and they can be accessed at parenting adhd and autism.com Slash zero five five for episode 55. Any last remarks that you want to make before we end? No, just thought that this was a wonderful
2: chat with you, Penny. And um, I loved our time chatting and discussing how we can support kids. And that's yeah.
1: mm-hmm. always good to chat with you too. I always enjoy your insights. You have a lot of good. Um, knowledge and experience behind your recommendations. And I definitely appreciate you sharing your time and your wisdom with the entire podcast audience. And I know they appreciate it as well. For sure. With that, we will end this episode and I will see everyone next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit parentingadhdandautism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.